Well, if you weren't here last week, let me explain to you why there are tents in our our parking lot. Um, They are the opportunity for you to get some questions answered about how you might serve our church or study uh, for the next six months. Every six months, half our church is in service and half is studying in a class in the first hour for you all before they come to worship. And the people in the tents, they'll still be there after the second service. They are all, as Daniel Creswell put it, veteran servers who can answer your question about what ministry might be the best fit for you to serve, whether it's children's ministry or prayer or whatever uh, opportunities might be out there. So let me encourage you, before you leave today, drop by there and you can sign up at those tents for our next six months of study or service. One other thing I'll draw to your attention, one of our uh, North Wakers that we are sending out is Jenny Sinclair, and she's about to go to Mexico to work with Wycliffe Bible translators to help translate the Bible into tribal languages where they do not have the Bible in their own language. And she is this close to being able to go. She hopes to leave in the next week or two and just needs a tiny bit more financial uh, assistance and prayer partners. If you would like to be a part of Jenny's ministry, if you're drawn to those who don't have the scriptures in their hand and want to be a part of getting it to them, Jenny's ministry would be fabulous. And you can contact uh, the office at office at northwake.com. We'll get the information to you right away that you can help her. Hopefully she'll be on her way in the next couple weeks uh, to serve down there. We are, as you can see behind me, studying the Trinity. Let me review. We've dropped out of this study for a couple weeks. So let me review some of the foundational principles for our faith in the Trinity. It's rooted in three truths that the Bible teaches. That God is one. That God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the three persons are each fully God. Jesus clearly taught us about the oneness of God when he said, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one quoting the book of, of Deuteronomy. Um, and if you turn to the way to the back of Matthew's gospel, which we studied a while back, um, we find all three persons of the Trinity fueling the mission of the church. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and <clears throat> excuse me, of the Holy Spirit. Based on these teachings and many, many other scriptures that we explored a couple weeks ago, We formulate the doctrine of the Trinity, which is expressed this way in our own church's doctrinal statement. We believe that the Godhead exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God and are worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. Now, I know that sitting through this teaching has given some of you headaches, okay? trying to wrap your brain around this. Um, I feel your pain. I'm in the middle of reading six books on the Trinity right now. Um, I just took a seventh back to the library. I could not do it. I couldn't fit it in. Plus a whole pile of articles on top of that. I feel your pain. But this is, this is central to who our God is. Getting this is essential to knowing Him and worshiping Him, and serving Him rightly. It's worth the headache of trying to wrap your brain around it. We cannot leave this doctrine 
to the guys who are paying money to study it down the road. This is for us. This is for us all. Okay? It's vibrantly essential to our faith. It shapes our church because the Trinity exists as a community of love, the Father and the Son and the Spirit loving one another. And that love spills out into our church so that we would be, like the Trinity, a community of love. And that it would spill out of us into our neighborhoods and even, as we've seen this morning, uh, to the nations. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity sets God apart as unique amongst all the other so-called gods of other faiths. There's no God like this. It's worth thinking long and, and hard about and, and sorting out according to the teaching of the Scriptures. So what we want to do for the next three weeks is spend one week looking at each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so today, we want to begin with the Father to whom we now want to pray. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, let's talk to our Father. Father, it is such, a, such an extraordinary privilege to speak of you with that, those words, our Father. Help us now to get that, to grasp it, to let it shape us and delight us that we have this privilege of having you and knowing you as our Father. So may your Spirit come now and use the word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My favorite book thus far on the Trinity is written by a guy named Michael Reeves, and he, he writes this about God as Father. He says, since God is before all things a Father, and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. He says, it's not that this God does being Father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father. All the way down. All that he does, he does as father. So central to who God is, that he is God as father, that when Jesus teaches us to pray, who does he teach us to pray to? Our father. So what do we mean when we say God is our Father? How is that supposed to shape us and affect us and, and delight us? What's beautiful about having God be our Father? And Jesus teaches something really, really interesting about this, kind of in a backhanded way when he's teaching on prayer in Matthew 7. But what he says about the Father is really fascinating. Jesus says, ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Is that little phrase, how much more? Jesus is telling us that our heavenly Father is more generous than our earthly fathers, 
even when they get it right. He's a better father than our earthly fathers on their best day. Okay? Now, a number of years ago, you probably don't know this, but I won Father of the Year Award. Um, I, honestly, I didn't just win. I dominated father, the Father of the Year competition. Every vote that was cast, it's cast for me. Um, okay, so the only vo- vote that was cast was cast for me. Thank you, Corey, uh, for voting for me. Um, but see, when I was at the top of my game, when I was the best dad I've ever been on that day when my daughter wanted to vote me Father of the Year, God was a better dad, a better father. How much more generous, loving, wise, powerful is our heavenly father than our earthly fathers could ever be? You know, the, the Bible has a lot A lot to say about God as Father, as you can imagine. So what I want to do today, really, is just sweep the teaching about God as Father into two large piles and let you think about them with me. Think about how good and beautiful this teaching is. The first of those two piles is simply that that the Father is over all, okay? That He directs all things that in a sense he is supremely in charge. And this is what's interesting. Even amongst the Trinity, the Father is supremely in charge. Um, now, when I say that, it's, it's, it's really important to, to remember that we say that the Trinity are equally God, each person in their essence, and equally worthy of worship. But yet the Bible teaches that God is sovereignly in charge, even amongst the Trinity. So if we were going to ask the question, where does the buck stop in the universe? We would say it stops with God the Father. God the Father is in charge of all things. But within the relationships of the Trinity, God, though co-equal with all the other The Spirit and the Son, same essence, same worth, same value. They differ only in relationship and role. And the Father's role is to be in charge, to be over even the Son and the Spirit. Um, John's Gospel talks a lot about this. Here's an example from uh, chapter 5. Jesus says, and, and listen closely, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who sent the Son? The Father. The Son is glad to defer to the will of the Father. And the Bible even says, it'll go so far as to say that the Son is subject to the Father. That's that's how Paul describes it. In 1 Corinthians 15, the language here is tricky, so see if you can track with me. When all things are subjected to him, that is the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, the tricky part is sorting out the hymns. 
um, because there's several of them going, going on here. So let's walk back through it. When all things are subject to Him, that is the Son, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, that's the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that's the Son, that God the Father may be all in all, that is, that He may be exalted above all. It's not just the Son that is in glad subjection to the Father, so's the Spirit. Uh, again, in John's Gospel, in the 14th chapter, and can you advance that slide for me, please? No? Yes, thank you. The Helper, Jesus is talking here. He says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the, the whole Trinity is active in this verse. Jesus says, the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, is sent by the Father. The, the Father is the one in charge overseeing the sending of the Spirit. See, within the Trinity, the Father is over the Son and the Spirit, and they relate to Him in obedient submission. This is the shape of love in the Trinity. The Father lovingly sends the Son, and the Son lovingly obeys, as does the Spirit. Um, and this is how the love of the Trinity then spills out on us. In Colossians 1, it says, uh, Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the Father has transferred us to the domain of the Son where we find forgiveness. It's the Father through the Son that grace and mercy and forgiveness comes to us. And it comes to us also by the Spirit's sending. We saw this a couple weeks ago in Romans 5. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Who has given the Spirit to us? The Father has given the Spirit to us. So this attribute of the Father, of being over all, of being supremely in charge, is always present, almost always present when the Bible speaks of God the Father. It, when it speaks of the Father's relationship to creation. It's that way. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. The Father is ruling over creation right down to the life and death of sparrows. Um, he's over us too, as a Father. And from that posture, He's our protector. Um, in John 17, Jesus is praying to his Father. And he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you, Father, keep them from the evil one. So who's protecting us from the evil one? Our Father is our protector. He's in charge. He is able to protect us. Um, because He is over us, um, He's also our provider. 
Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's our provider. Trusting our Father, who's over all of creation, to provide for us, removes our anxiety. And because He's over us, He also does what loving fathers do. He disciplines us as His children. Hebrews chapter 12 says, We who have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, our heavenly Father, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us, our Father disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. So whenever we think of God as our Father, the first great pile of teachings that the Bible kind of brings together is that He's over all. He's over all as creator, protector, provider, as the one who disciplines us, all of these things in love. And that really points us kind of towards that second pile of teachings about God as Father that I, that I want to draw to our attention this morning. Um, Yes, the Father is over the Son. Yes, He sends the Son. And He directs Him and dispatches Him and the Son does His will. But that's not all that the Father is and does, especially with respect to the, the Trinity, the other persons of the Trinity, especially concerning His Son. If we just think of Him as that, then He just becomes some great ruler of the cosmos, impersonal judge and ruler. He doesn't just send His Son. The Father sends His Son in love. He loves how the Father loves His Son. And that's inherent in the image. It just sounds right, doesn't it? That a father should love his son, that he should be over his son, and that he should love his son. Again, we're going to eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17. Jesus says, I in them, that is I in my disciples, and you in me, Father, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father has always loved his Son. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. How the Father loves his Son, so much so that it's intended to spill over to us. Um, you know, when you think about showing love, a father, how a father shows love for his son, one of the ways that that happens <clears throat> is giving presents. Dads oftentimes love to give presents, um, extravagant, budget-busting presents on occasion. Um, you know, some kids get a used car or a motorbike for their 16th birthday, birthday but um, Justin Combs got this from his dad, P. Diddy. A $360,000 sports car for his 16th birthday. Um, 
His dad is, is rap artist and producer Sean Combs, a.k.a. P. Diddy. You all knew that. You all are listening to him on your iPod, aren't you? I knew you were. Um, I didn't even know what this car was. It's a Maybach 57, which is they took the most luxurious Mercedes made, and that wasn't enough, so they luxuried it up and made it into this car. It's one of the most expensive cars you can buy. In addition to that, his dad gave him $10,000 to spend partying in New York City on his 16th birthday, driving his Maybach 57. Now, if, if nothing else in this story, if, if giving is a father's love language, I think P. Diddy loves his son, okay? I really think he does. What, let's, let's step back a little bit and say, what does the heavenly father give to his son as an expression of his love? It's a very simple verse in John 3. Jesus says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The father gives it all to the son. He's more generous than our earthly fathers on their best day. He's more generous towards his son than P. Diddy is towards his son on his 16th birthday. Our heavenly father is way more generous. Okay. See, to be father is to love. Listen to these verses. You're, you're probably familiar with them. 1 John 4 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Okay. God is love. And the way we know God is love because he sent, God sent his only son into the world. Whose son? The Father's Son. John is telling us that God the Father is love. It's who He is. I love the way Michael Reeves put it. He says, many theologians have liked, liked to compare the Father to a fountain, ever bursting out with life and love. And just as a fountain, to be a fountain, must pour forth water, so the Father, to be Father, must give out life and love. That is who he is. That's his most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the Father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. Pardon the double negative. If he did not love, he would not be Father. That's how central love is to our Father. He is love. That's the Father we're talking about. We say God is love. It's not some arbitrary God out there somewhere. It's our Father. The one we pray to and say, Abba, Father. That's, he is love. And amazingly, by adoption, through his Son, you and I get to know that Father who is love. And with that love, he loves us. The same love that he loves his son Jesus with. We've already seen that, but Galatians talks about it. In chapter 4, it says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth His Son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. John says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, adopted. God is now our Father. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He, he wrote a fascinating book that you should read sometimes, really small. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a fictional conversation between an upper-level demon and his apprentice as he tries to counsel him about the man that he's been assigned to to mess with. And so Screwtape, who is the uh, senior demon, writes to his apprentice about God the Father. And this is what he has to say. He says, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. God the Father really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. That would be us. Creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. Screwtape says, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over such that Jesus would say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's the love of the Father pouring over the Son to us. So when the Bible draws our attention to God as our Father, listen to what it sounds like. It sounds like this in 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have comforted, are comforted by God, God the Father. He's the God of all comfort. Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's the God of compassion. And because he's a father who has compassion on his kids, that's, that's what is expected of God by his people. Rightly so. In Isaiah, the people couldn't see God's compassion for them. They were being harassed and oppressed by enemies. And this is how they pray in Isaiah 63. You are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us, you, O oh Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. And they lobby God, they pray to God for mercy simply because He's their Father. And that's what fathers do. They love their kids and they show them mercy. Because He's Father, He, he has a great actual affection for His kids. Um, Jeremiah says, um, speaks about Ephraim, which is another way of describing Israel, God's people, his son. Is Ephraim my dear son? Yes. 
Is he my darling child? Yes. For as often as I speak against him, God says, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. He loves his children. And the New Testament describes the father this way. It says this in a, in a verse you're really familiar with. In James chapter 1, it says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing you experience comes from God. Every good thing you experienced yesterday came from God. Let me tell you about my day yesterday. I got up yesterday, and it was Saturday, and that was a good thing from God. That was a good gift from God. It was Saturday. And so on Saturday morning, Steph and I get on our bikes and we ride up towards Franklinton. That's a good thing from God. It was a beautiful morning. Cool. The birds were out. The ditch lilies are blooming. This is a gift from God. Midway in the ride, my wife left me. I'm not sure if that was a good thing from God. But then she waited for me on up ahead. That was a good thing from God. I survived the bike ride. A good thing from God. And I went back to the house, and I fed some birds, and I watered some flowers. Those are good things from God. And I made myself lunch, a great sandwich, a good thing from God. So I took my youngest son, put the mower in the truck, went by the dump on the way, and stopped by my oldest son's house. It was my youngest son's job to mow my oldest son's yard. So we went over there, and he started to mow the yard, and I went inside the house in the air conditioning to do some reading, a good thing from God. He survived the mowing experience, a good thing from God, and we got in the truck and went back home. And I sat out the rest of the afternoon on the back porch reflecting on the notes that I'm going to share with you this morning on, on the Father. That was a good thing from God as I looked out in the woods in my backyard. And then we cooked out dinner on the grill, another good thing from God, and we spent some time together as a family last night, and I watched as the medicine that my daughter was taking for her uh, small infection she had, started to clear it up, and that was a good thing from God. And I opened the windows up because it was a cool night, and the cool breeze came in through our house, and I went to sleep and prayed to my father a good gift from God. And I probably skipped more in my day than I remembered. But that's a normal day. That could be your day. Okay? It is your day. Every day, every good thing that comes to you, it's because God's your father. And he loves to give good gifts to his children. It's all from the Father. So whenever we think of God the Father, there are two great piles of truth that Scripture brings to us about him. One, we're talking to the Father who's in charge of everything. He's over all. And he's, he's over all in love. He loves especially his children. How ought those two piles of truth about God shape us? Let me point out three simple ways, but I think significant ways. One I spoke about a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Trinity. Understanding who the Father is shapes the way we pray really significantly. The New Testament pattern is that we would pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. It's this great Trinitarian thing, but 
predominantly we pray to the Father. That's typically the way we pray. There are prayers um, to the Son that are included in the New Testament, not very many. And there are um, virtually, if not totally, no prayers to the Holy Spirit. Now, do not go and be the prayer Nazi in your small group. And if someone prays to the Son or to the Holy Spirit, you say, wait, wait, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the New Testament that we pray to the Holy Spirit. You know, He is God. He is a person. We can talk with Him and worship Him, which is prayer. Those are not bad prayers, as John Piper says. Just the primary pattern for us is to talk to the Father so that when we pray, we are always coming, not before some generic God out there somewhere, but the Father who's in charge of all things, who loves us. We always pray to Him. So much so that when Jesus teaches us how to pray, He says, Our Father. We call that the Lord's Prayer. Many Christians call it by another name. Do you know the name? The Our Father. And it, you know how it goes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Have you ever reflected that every line of that prayer is prayed to our Father? We don't introduce the prayer with our Father, and then pray to some generic God out there. Every line. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we want God to exalt his name of Father, that he would be known as Father throughout the world. It's our Father's kingdom that we want to come, not some distant, cold king we don't know. It's our Father's kingdom that we're praying would come on earth as it is in heaven. It's our Father's will that we want to be done. The Father, the one who loves us, that's whose will we want to have happen. It's our Father, the one who provides for us, that we're asking for daily bread. It's our Father, the one who sent His Son in love to bear our sins on the cross, that we're praying for forgiveness to. It's our Father, our strong and mighty Father who rules over all that we're asking to guide us away from temptation and to rescue us from evil. See, whenever we pray, we're praying to a Father who's able to help us in our need and who loves us with the greatest of loves. The fatherhood of God shapes all of our praying. It should, because that's who we're praying to, our Father, just like Jesus taught us. And of course... Um, a week away from Father's Day, when we think about God as Father, we can't help but think that that has to shape who we are as fathers, right? Um, let me see if I've, I've got this picture here. Wait a minute. Are you doing that or am I doing that? Somebody's messing with me here. There's a picture there somewhere. Can you find it for me? Hey, there we go. Um, this is from World War II, and I've forgotten which island on the Pacific is. This is my Uncle Dick, the sailor. And this is my dad, Lawrence, uh, the Air Force guy. And there are two little, two little guys from a couple of farms in, in a little teeny town in the Midwest that just happened to cross paths on some island in the Pacific, and they got this picture taken together. Um, so I keep this in my office. It's a, it's a remembrance of my dad who passed away a couple years ago. 
And I was blessed to have a good dad. I mean, he wasn't a perfect dad, but he was a good dad. He was a small businessman, ran a little paint and body shop with my Uncle Dick back in the little town that I grew up in. And uh, he was a man of integrity, ran that business with integrity. He had a reputation of integrity in our community. He was a man who loved his family. I never grew up with a question of whether or not he loved my mom or whether or not he loved me or my brother or sister. It wasn't said a lot, but it was, it was unquestioned. Okay? So for me to go from my dad, who was a dad who was in charge, I didn't mess with my dad. I messed with my mom sometimes. I didn't mess with my dad. Okay? He fought in World War II. I didn't mess with him. It wasn't a big jump for me to go from a dad who was in charge and expected to be, um, you know, honored and obeyed and a dad who I never had a question in my whole life about whether or not he loved me um, to a God who was father, who had those same traits, who, who ruled over all and, and who loved me. Um, that was... A, it was a God-intended model for me. Um, now, I know for some of you, your dad was not like that. Um, and I know that as a result, this can be a struggle for you. And somebody asked me between the services, so what do you do if you're, you're that guy or that girl who didn't have a dad who fit this model? And I, I told him, I said, go to the scriptures and learn about your heavenly father. Learn what he's like. Study every verse on the fatherhood of God that you can find and make a list of all that that reveals to you about God and know that that is your heavenly father, not, unfortunately, the paradigm that was the bad one that was modeled for you. But you see the significance of dads who should be honored and who love their kids. We grease the skids for our children to believe that that's what God is like. We are a gift to them from the Father. As C.S. Lewis put it in, that in some small way, we sh our life should be qualitatively like his. Um, as dads, we cannot let ourselves become irrelevant, sidelined, not engaged, not responsible, not in charge. There was a dad who, um, he did not offer his name for reasons that are probably obvious. He had some unexpected excitement on a family vacation. Uh, the man and his family had spent the night at a hotel in Memphis, and they'd stopped off to fill up their gas tank, and evidently they'd been driving uh, through a, a good portion of that, of that day and the night. And when the family hit the road after the gas station, they left their dad behind. The father explained what happened. He said, somebody had been sleeping all night in the back, and they were going to drive, and I was going to get in the back and sleep, and I went inside to get my change for the gas, and they thought I was already loaded up, and they closed all the doors, and they took off. <laughs> so the dad tried to call his own cell phone, which was in with his family traveling down the road in the van. He says, but nobody answered it. He said, they had six different cell phones, and nobody answers and my phone is in there because it's on the charger and nobody answers it. And then it starts going straight to voicemail. He says, that's odd. Okay. So he called the police 
and they couldn't help him. So he turned, yes, to Facebook to contact his family as they went down the road. He borrowed a computer from a local motel and got in touch with his family through Facebook. The van was about 100 miles down the road, and nobody knew dad wasn't there. Okay? We, dads, we can't be that dad. Our kids need to learn that we are there for them, that we are responsible for what goes on in their lives and in our homes. They need that. It helps them make the leap to their heavenly Father who's there for them and knows what's going on and is needed. The way we train our kids to honor their father is training to honor God. Malachi 1 puts it this way. God is speaking. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God says, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And it's predicated on their understanding that fathers should be honored. So Ergo, the heavenly Father surely should be honored. We cannot also, dads, allow the busyness of life to disconnect us from our kids and to cause us to become cold and distant and unloving to them. We need instead to be like what Jesus described in this story in Matthew 18. What do you think, he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Father would search out, pursue in love. You think back to that that story of the prodigal son and that dad. It says that his dad, when the son arose and came to his father, um, while he was still a long way off, his father, who represents God the Father in this story, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We need to, we need to be there for our kids living honorable lives and requiring them to honor us and loving them lavishly. Now, because God is our Father and He is over all and loves us so, it shapes our prayer life, it shapes dads, but it also shapes our obedience to our Father. It makes us want to obey Him. And when that doesn't mark us, it's just wrong. Jeremiah, we saw this earlier, Jeremiah says, God is speaking here, he says, how, how I would set you among my sons he said, and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And he compares a son who dishonors his father with a wife who is unfaithful to her husband. When it doesn't 
when faithfulness to our Father who so loves us doesn't mark us, it's just wrong. We have um, some friends we see from time to time, and uh, they have one of those delightful uh, preteen boys. You know what I'm talking about? They have one of those. And uh, consistently and repeatedly and without virtually any rebuke, he mocks his father. Um, and nothing, virtually nothing is done. And this young man is not being prepared to know that he has a father in heaven who he dare not mock, that, he, that is worthy of his honor. Um, kids, know that how you honor your father readies you for how you will honor God. It does. It's by his design. And some of you I know are thinking, but what if my dad doesn't deserve it? Well, no dad always deserves it, and you should honor him in every way you can. There's this amazing little scene in a movie called Band of Brothers, and when you're, dead, when you're older, your dad will watch it with you probably. Um, it's about two soldiers, and one of them used to be the subordinate, and he became the superior. Uh, Major, uh, Major Winters is now over Captain Sobel, who used to be his boss. And they meet. And Captain Sobel is not excited that the guy who used to be under him is now over him as his major, and, and he doesn't salute him. And Captain, Captain Winters stops him, and he says this. He says, uh, salute the rank, not the man. And so, even when your dad's having a bad day, you still honor him because he's your dad. And that honors God, and that prepares you to honor God. In every way you can. And I recognize there are severe limits to that. But watch, watch with me how the father deals even with dishonoring sons, which is us. Okay? In the book of Hosea, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He rescued them from slavery. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, false gods, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, his son, Israel, to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. That even though his children did not honor him, God still loved them and pursued them. A father like this, he should be loved and obeyed. It's just right. It's just a privilege to have a dad like that. And Jesus said, or John says rather in 1 John 5, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. That's how we love God. We obey him as our father. It's an act of love to our father in heaven to obey him. So, two, two great things about God. He is overall our father. And so we, we should honor him and we can trust him because not only is he overall, but he loves us, this father. He loves us with a love never ever seen anywhere else. 
He has adopted us through his son into his family, and he loves us. And I think you get a sense that maybe the most important thing that you can make sure of is that you are adopted into the family of God. Nothing matters more than that. This love that we're talking about is not a love that's available to anyone anywhere. It's reserved for those who are adopted into the family of God through faith in God's own son's work on the cross on their behalf, where Jesus died not for his sins, but for yours, yours and mine. Faith in that good work of Jesus on your behalf is how you are adopted into God's family. And this love then is made available to you always and forever because that's what the Father is. God the Father is love. And he always loves his kids. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?